Some people think that they should have no pain ever. Like in any amount of discomfort is, is ridiculous pain. Um, and that's, that's just unrealistic. Again, pain is not necessarily the enemy. Uh, well, it's always the messenger. And sometimes pain is your friend because it's telling you where you need to spend more time. Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to episode 30 of the Movement Logic Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Court, physical therapist, and I am here with my very special guest, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist, Dr. Chris Rayner. Dr. Rayner is co-founder of Human 2.0 in Ottawa, an integrated healthcare and fitness facility that holds a movement is medicine philosophy. They offer a wide range of interventions and resources, including orthopedic evaluations, physical therapy, group training, corporate wellness, and as I personally was delighted to find, a mobility practice geared towards motorheads like myself so that we are best prepared for the physical demands of riding a motorcycle. In essence, Dr. Rayner and his wife Amanda are running the kind of PT practice that many in the U.S. would love to work at with physical therapists, massage therapy, strength training. Typically in this country, in the U.S., when there is a doctor overseeing a facility like this, it's called physician-owned physical therapy services. And these practices live in an ethically ambiguous space as there are concerns around physicians practicing referral for profit, essentially upselling types of PT treatment following surgery to increase their own personal income. But what Dr. Rayner is doing is different. When patients come to him for an evaluation, he may well discourage surgery in favor of a movement-based intervention that asks a lot more compliance and discipline from the patient, which already puts him in a whole different category than a lot of orthopedic surgeons out there and is why I wanted to interview him. Today, we're talking about surgeon stereotypes, how to determine if surgery is the right approach, strength and mobility training, plus your questions from Instagram answered. So, Dr. Rayner, thank you so much for coming on the Movement Logic podcast. We really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you very much for the inf- for the invitation. I, I often say to people, I'm I'm amazed anytime anybody wants to hear me speak um, <laughs> because <laughs> I'm very opinionated. But yeah, I, I'm I'm amazed and and I'm humble uh, that people would like to hear what's inside my head and think that it's a value. So I greatly appreciate uh, the invitation and thank you very much. It's our pleasure. I kind of just want to jump right in with this. I want to address the stereotypes that a lot of movement teachers, yoga teachers in particular, have sort of come to believe about orthopedic surgeons and, you know, what their mindset is. Here we go. Number one, orthopedic surgeons only want to do surgery because when you have a hammer, everything is a nail. (laughs) Number two, (laughs) orthopedic surgeons don't think that physical therapy can help or help enough and I have personal experience with this. I found it surprising. Number three, they don't think, orthopedic surgeons don't think pain can be relieved with movement, let alone with strength training. And then number four, they're resistant to changing their opinion about any of these things. 
So you don't seem to be any of these things. And I'm wondering if you ever were, if you were, what changed for you? And if not, how did you develop your career and your practice so that you were able to create something like Human 2.0? Obviously, I, I, I was a classically trained orthopedic surgeon. And um, when I uh, went through the program, I, I learned to have a relationship with physical therapy that most other orthopedic surgeons do. What I have discovered um, once I went into practice myself was that there were shortcomings in that that sort of classic relationship with that classic model uh, and that I needed to make some change, changes. I, I'm very much a, a problem solver. And so if, if something is not working or I don't like the way that it is working, I, I think, how, how can I change this and how can I make this better? My current stance on orthopedic surgery versus physical therapy stems from a combination of things. So some of my classical teaching, but also my experience afterwards um, as an orthopedic surgeon in the classical model uh, and disappointment with the results that patients would get. It also stems from my own experience as a patient of orthopedic surgery and seeing what things worked, what things didn't work with post-operative rehab uh, and how I could do things to make myself uh, either rehabilitate better or faster. In addition to that, my experience as a personal trainer um, and a fitness coach. And then finally, my experiences as a multidisciplinary musculoskeletal care um, facility owner, right? So our, our facility, Human 2.0, is, um, as you mentioned, it, it covers a, a gamut of services. And when I first um, came to to decide to open that facility, I, I did it out of frustration. And, and so the classical teaching is I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I do surgery, and then when the surgery is done, I hand them over to you, physical therapist. And, and I don't tell you what to do. I go ACL reconstruction, physical therapy, go. And um, then you do your thing. They come back to me for follow-up and I monitor their progress uh, and then at the end, once I've deemed them appropriate for discharge uh, and return to sport or return to their activity, then I discharge the patient. So when I that was the model that I learned, and so that's what I did. And when I first came out, the first couple of years, you know, I'm learning my craft, and I would send people out, and I and and at that time I was doing a crap ton of ACL reconstructions. So uh, this applies to many things, many different surgeries and procedures that I do, but. ACLs was this thing I was doing a ton of at that time. And I would see the whole spectrum of people respond. And some people would respond well, some people would respond poorly. You know, I recognize that as a, a surgeon, I, I'm learning my craft. And so not every single operation is going to be or technically perfect. But there were times when I would look at a case, I'd review the notes and I'm like, I'd look at the x-rays, everything. Everything about that case was perfect. When I left that OR, that person had a full range of motion. The knee was stable in extension, stable in flexion. And then I follow that patient up and they would get substandard results. Their knee is stiff. I'm like, what is going on? And so I just kind of would file that in the way of the back of my brain and I'd carry on. Just keep saying to myself, I got to get better. I got to get better. But then after doing that for a few years, uh, I started to notice patterns, you know, because I'd ask people, what are they doing for physio? They'd tell me. And then I would say, oh, geez, they're really not doing much. And they'd show me their little sheet of exercises. And I'm like, this is not enough, man. This is not, this is this, like, this is bad. So 
then I started to make little changes and I would write on the physiotherapy requisition. Okay, ACL reconstruction, they need to have active uh, physiotherapy exercises, no modalities, blah, blah, blah. So there was a marginal improvement, marginal improvement. Um, and then, you know, but I'd still keep asking people. And so then they'd tell me and I'm like, God, I need to be more specific. So then I would write, you know, active, progressive exercise therapy, no modalities, no machines, uh, flexibility, blah, 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 strength, blah, blah, blah. I, and I would be like, I'd write out a page and I was doing this all the time and it slowly got better, but it still wasn't enough. And, and I kept coming home complaining and my wife got sick of me complaining. And then one day she said, you know, stop complaining, do something about it. I'm like, you know what? You're damn right. I'm going to do something about it. And I, and I'm not thinking that I know more than physiotherapists. I don't want to tell them how to do their business, but I, I want my patients to have a good result. And part of this is selfish because if I do a technically sound surgery, my patients have a good result. That looks good on me. Right. And I don't want to do a good surgery and then have them have a crappy result. And then people go, oh, he's a crappy surgeon. When um, you know and I know that what I do for the surgery is like five to 10 percent of the rehabilitative process. The, the remainder is what they do afterwards, how compliant they are, what they're doing, what their level of determination is. So um, I finally said, OK, I got to open up this facility. So I did that and I had the the great fortune when I opened my facility of hiring a trainer who was doing a lot of CrossFit, but then he was kind of switching over from CrossFit to mobility. And he was my head trainer. And I, he opened my eyes to sort of the mobility world. I, I was like, wait a minute, like, this is what you guys are doing. This is what you're doing for the fitness people in our class. But this stuff, I could use this for my patients. How about we start doing some of this over here for the patients? We'll scale it down because they're rehabilitation and they're not training or elite training. We'll scale it down to their level, but let's do these same things. Started to do that and started to see started to see results. And I was like, oh my God. Then the light bulb went off. It's like, hey, I got to think differently about what I'm doing. So that kind of led me along this path that I'm on now, focusing on a, a mobility-based approach to um, health, wellness, rehabilitation, and performance training. You know, I'm, I'm in the midst, I'm probably about 80 to 90% done um, for a course that I'm putting together for physios um, called Apex. And, um, and it's going to cover all of these principles. But in my mind, rehab, training, performance training, they're all the same thing. Uh, I do it because in our realm, in my realm, we do all the same thing. I don't care. I have professional NFL players, NBA players. I have Olympians that train with us. Um, and then I have the average people who work out with us or, or the average competitive athletes that train with us and work or work out with us. We do the same thing for everybody. We either scale it up for the people who are elite, or we scale it down for the people who are rehabbing. But we do the same thing for everything, for everybody. And, and so now in my mindset, I played high level of football, varsity football, and then I went to the CFL in Canada. Um, so our version of the NFL, it was very short lived, mind you, but, but at least <laughs> I went to the show. As a competitive athlete, like everything's about training and how to improve your performance. And so in my mind, everything is is a sport and i don't care whether the sport is for grandma who's 95 and she just wants to be able to get down on the floor and play with her grandkids 
That's her sport. I look at everybody as an athlete and I'm going to make every athlete the best damn athlete for their sport that I can. So in my mind, surgery is just one part of this spectrum and it's only one of the tools. Um, there are so many other non-surgical tools um, that we can do either pre or post um, surgery or to avoid surgery in some cases. My experience in all of those different areas has kind of led me along this path that has made me think differently um, than my colleagues. And I, I know that I'm a little bit of a unicorn um, in orthopedic surgery, but there are two things that let me know that I'm on the right path. And, and we've had our facility, facility, this is going into the eighth year. So number one, when I was training, I didn't get along with all of my instructors, so all of the, the senior surgeons that were teaching us. And there was one um, in particular, he and I are like mortal enemies, right? Like It's like if I see him on the street, it's on, right? <laughs> and so that guy, and he, he doesn't like me, and I don't like him. But because I'm my office is the gym, I'm seeing patients that come in. Some of my patients go there, but they're not all my patients. There are lots of other patients from all, of, all across the city. We're a city of a million, and there's like 60 orthopedic surgeons in town. There are times when patients will be um, in there, and the therapist may ask me a question, which is another one of the benefits of, of being in this multidisciplinary place. Um, they can just directly ask me a question because I happen to be there, even though it's not my patient. So they would, they'll ask me questions all the time. And I started to notice every once in a while, they'd ask me a question. They'd say, oh, this person had a knee replacement and it was done by surgeon so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, but I know I don't like him, but I know exactly what he wants and I know what he expects. And I'd say, oh, well, you know, this is, I trained under him and this is kind of what he would do. And I started to notice that more and more we're seeing patients from him. And if he will go to the extent to take his patient that he wants to get a good result for and send them to his enemy <laughs> to get that, that tells me we're doing something right, right? So that's that was number one. That's the first thing that lets me know that I was doing something right. And then for the first several years that we were open, lots of orthopedic surgeons knew about my place and they were like, oh, what are you doing? Why, like, why are you spending money doing that? Well, you should just buy a cottage and blah, blah, blah. And they thought, <laughs> it's a dumb idea, dumb idea, right? Like, why would you do that? Because um, we are not like the United States. And, and so there is this ethical gray zone of owning a place like this. Um, and nobody wants to get involved with that. Um, however, just at the tail end of COVID, um, on the other side of town, a group of five orthopedic surgeons from another hospital just put up a place. Almost, it's not fully identical because they haven't completely drunk the Kool-Aid. It's 80% the same as, as our place. And I'm like, oh, I thought you guys thought I was stupid before. But now they're kind of, because the results speak for themselves. Surgeons, not only the guy that I don't like, but there are other surgeons that they send their problems to us. Mm -hmm. Right. And, be, and why would they do that? Because they get better. It's like, oh, they've been over here, been treated. Things haven't worked. Let's send them over to Chris's place. And oh, now they get better. So the, both of those things tell me that it's a very, you know, tacit approval um, yeah. from, from the community that some people are starting to sort of see the light. 
Yeah. And we're seeing that. I mean, I'm seeing that here in Los Angeles as well with different surgeons that that have sent me patients or or just relationships that I've, I've sort of built over the years. But so by the time that you have people that come to you, let's say for, for an, an evaluation, you know, they've come to you for potentially for surgery. Whereas it seems to me like your approach a lot of the time is is to help people who don't need or wouldn't benefit from a surgery to not do it and instead do the work that they would benefit from. What do you do when there's the opposite? You have someone who actually would benefit from a surgery, but they don't want to do it. When I was a junior resident, uh, I learned what you know, are the appropriate surgical indications for different conditions, right? And um, so when I saw something, I remember a particular example, I saw a young man who had a fractured calcaneus, and this was a young, healthy, active guy. And I said, yo, you you need to get this fixed because, and and oddly enough, or interestingly enough, he was a motorcycle rider, okay? (laughs) Um, He was riding a little beyond his limits Mm -hmm. on the street. He ended up uh, offing his bike into the woods and he hit a tree mm-hmm. and he was remarkably good, but just had this calcaneus fracture. And so I said, Hey, you know, the surgical indications for this, like this needs to be treated operatively. And I remember trying to convince this guy and he was a little, a little bit of a hothead and he was like, no, I'm going to be fine. I heal fine. Blah, blah. And I remember trying to argue with him. And then I said, you know, like he was in his late, 20s. Oh, let me talk to your mother and all this kind of stuff. I was trying to convince him. And then I had, um, when I was giving report to my senior, he said, listen, um, our job as, as surgeons is to give people information and try to steer them in an appropriate direction. But if not, then, then it's okay. And he said something that uh, I always remember. He said, when you leave at the end of the day, what does your calcaneus look like? Is it your calcaneus? And, I, and he said, no, your calcaneus is fine. Your leg is fine. You're this just there to give information. And if they want this surgery, then you can help them. So for people, there are people who come to me. I have both ends of the spectrum. I have people who are non-operative and they're convinced they need a surgery and I have to convince them otherwise. But there are people who I know they need surgery and they say, no, 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 no. Ah, you're a surgeon. All you want to do is cut, 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 cut. So I, I'm like, Listen, I'm just here to give you the information and um, I'm um, going to help to facilitate your journey to recovery one way or the other. In my own personal opinion, um, this particular problem would require a surgery to help you get to where you want to be and the result that you want. But if you do not want that, I'm cool with that, right? Because at the end of the day, I'm going to walk home and I'm going to be fine. You can choose to do the non-operative route if you want, and I will support that, right? At some point, I'd say to people, whenever you are ready, this is elective surgery. When it, it means you can elect to do it or not to do it. And so when you are ready, you will let me know. Because I I'm, I'm don't want to take a patient against their will, try to convince them, have surgery, and then they have a complication. And then it's like, oh, see, I told you. No, 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 no. It's like, I said, look, at this is what I think should happen. But if you are not for that, no problem. We'll treat it um, in you know whatever way I think is appropriate, uh, or whichever way it is that you want. And then when you deem that you that has failed, and you want to proceed with surgery, you can let me know. I will say to those people now: in the interim, if there is a deterioration 
of your condition, that will take your um, chance of success from whatever it may be, 90%, 85%, whatever, to say 55% or 40%. And so you should be aware of that. But they are the one who is in control. We have to obtain consent from them before we can take them to the OR. So um, my job is not to convince. My job is to provide information and, and then to support and guide them through their journey. Yeah. I think sometimes I was struck by what you're talking about as far as like, it's not my calcaneus, it's their calc. My calcaneus is fine, right? We walk away at the end of the day. I think one of the things that maybe all sort of clinicians in general compared to, you know, a lot of people who listen to this show are non-clinicians, but movement professionals, let's just say. And it, I think sometimes it can be sort of, we can, clinicians can be cast in a sort of uncaring light sometimes. But I think that the really important thing for people to know is that you, I, I mean, the number of people that you see, the number of people that I see, like, I can't take my people home. You know, no, you it has to, you, your own, that's the fastest way to just burn yourself out and, and yes. be left with nothing. So, well, there, so there is, I, I have had some, um, interactions with patients that were very, uh, very emotional for me. Right. Um, and, uh, I, I, during my junior career and even later on, um, but the, you, you quickly learn that like on an average week, um, let me see. In my plaster clinic, I'll see 80 patients. Uh, in the average week, I'll see, um, I will operate on 20 people huh. and I will um, see in the clinic or in Emerge over 200, maybe 300, 200, 250 patients every week, right? And um, if I allowed myself to become emotionally invested every one of those patients, I, I would be burnt out in a second. Not only that, I would not be able to do my job. Um, yeah. People think this is very callous, but I will tell you, um, I like when people, I'm very laid back. And, and I said to you before we started filming, what you see is what you get. I'm just, I'm just chill. I'm pretty relaxed. Uh, although I'm a type A personality, but in inter, like, you know, interpersonally speaking with patients, I'm very chill. Um, and I'm friendly and easygoing with my patients in the clinic. Um, if I see them out on the street, whatever, right? The moment that I step into the OR and I shut the door, like, well, not quite when I shut the door, but the moment that they've had their anesthesia and, and the drapes go up, done. I'm not interpersonally involved with anybody. They become, I become a machine and, and I have a technique and a process I have to go through and um, they just become another job to me. And the reason is because like, I have to put those emotions away yeah. because um, I, I have the plan in place um, and I know what I'm supposed to do, but oh, hey, I'm doing my plan and I'm hitting the, the femur, the femoral implant, crack. Oh, the femur breaks. Like, I, I can't be going, oh, this dude is my friend. Right. Oh, like, like that, I now, it's like, oh, I have a femur fracture. I got to figure out now how to take this elective case, which is now turned into a trauma case, and figure out how to get this person the best result possible. Or if I'm in a trauma case 
and like we're, we're doing dissection, boom, an artery, there's a cut artery. Like I don't have time to be emotionally invested. I, I need to become a robot for that. Yeah. And it's like, oh, cut artery, pressure, clamp, find, dissect, find the, 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 the tear in the artery, repair the tear in the artery, get back on track and do it in a, in a, in a reasonable amount of time so that this patient doesn't get an infected and they don't have a problem because of anesthetic. That, that means I need to be like very methodical, very analytical, um, and very cold during that time. So uh, I have this ability to put those things in a closet in the back of my mind during during my uh, you know procedures and when I need to. And then when I'm done and everything's good, I can I can you know open up the closet and human Chris can come back out and we can <laughs> and we're all good, you know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's the, it, it's the sort of skill, it's a skill to be able to do that, I think. And and I think some people find it easier than, than others. It's the same sort of skill that makes, I think, some people good in an emergency and other people not good in an emergency because Very your ability much. not to like run around freaking out. And in fact, just sort of like look at the facts of the situation and be like, okay, what needs to happen here right now? Understanding the difference between that skill versus this idea that you then have no emotions whatsoever ever, you know, and you're just this like robot surgeon. It's a challenge, I think. I mean, I've also, you know, I, I've had orthopedic surgery and and uh, I have a hip replacement and the person who did it is a brilliant surgeon uh, with absolutely zero bedside manner. And I, which is, in my experience, has been men, many in orthopedics, not all, not all, not all, but plenty. Yes. Um, but I also myself was able to look at that situation and be like, well, do I want the person who is probably the best in this city of Los Angeles at this surgery doing yeah. it? Or do I yeah. want someone who's going to like stroke my arm? And I'm like, well, I don't need, you know, personally, I don't need the arm stroking. I need the like, you know, skill set. So I think it just depends sometimes on people's people's needs and what they're able to, you know, how they're able to take care of themselves. I do see, and I've been thinking about this in particular more and more lately because I'm sort of seeing more and more of it. I have patients that I see who have had surgery upon surgery upon surgery upon surgery. Not, you know, sometimes it seems like they're they're almost addicted to it, or they only believe that surgery is the the thing that's going to fix whatever is wrong. And these are also then the patients that are not getting better with movement interventions. But I I hesitate to think that the movement intervention is not useful because I, you know, I'm, I'm using all of my tools, right. And, and sometimes it's people who've had multiple spine surgeries, but it's not limited to multiple spine surgeries. You know, I, I have a couple of people that I, that I work with and it's almost like the, the patient has come to believe that they are for whatever, you know, physio biological reason, a special case. And I don't mean that in a rude way, but like, like there's something that's like, like there's an asterisk next to them. And the only thing that works for them is surgery. None of this other, they've tried everything. And the only thing that gets them better is surgery. What, what's your take on this? Are there really, are there people out there who really need these multiple surgeries or is part of the problem, this repetitive surgical intervention that may, you know, maybe not the individual surgery, but the, the collection of surgeries are creating maybe more problems in the end? So um, I think that the answer here, or one of the answers, stems back to something that you just mentioned and, and 
for the last question in that what it is that we do as surgeons and how it is received really depends on what the patient's needs are. And it, it could be physical needs, i.e. surgical needs, but also psychological needs, right? And so um, I have some of these patients myself. And um, every time I see them, uh, their name on the chart, like before clinic, I like, I die inside a little bit because I'm like, oh my God, they're back again. Like what now? One of the things that I used to get crap for all the time as a resident is that I take too long with patients. Um, <laughs> and, and this is for a number of reasons. To make a long story short, I had made a promise before I started. I was never going to leave. I didn't want patients to ever leave my office um, without understanding and without me giving them time. So I allow people the opportunity to speak, um, such sometimes, oftentimes to my detriment. But for these people, like I will spend an inordinate amount of time trying to convince them, yo, you are not broken. There are other ways to deal with this. You know, we can do this. You can try this. I just saw one yesterday where um, I, I said, you know, these are the, the non-operative measures that we can do. And, and all of these things, if you did these things and you committed to them, you would find that they would make a difference. But there's always an excuse why they couldn't. And they believe themselves to be special case. Oh, I tried this. I worked hard. And I'm like, well, what did you, what do you call worked hard? Well, I did this exercise one day. I'm like, bro. What do, you, what do you think one day is going to do for you? Like I, I said, you need to do this, you know, four times a week and you need to do it consistently over six weeks for a change to even start. There are these people. And I think it is, it just takes one person from a surgical standpoint to give in, um, to feed that, that belief. And then after that, we're, the, the rest of us, including that surgeon, we're, we're done. Because then they, then you've cemented that idea in their head. And then no matter what you say, for the most part, they're not going to believe. And I, and I yeah, it, it's tough. And, and I try to resist these people as long as I can. But, and, and, and I try to convince them of, to go the non-operative route. But the other aspect of it, and this is more so the case for you in America than it is for me, um, we live in a very litigious society. And so... Um, people, in, especially in the United States, are, are quick to sue for, for anything. And so, um, you know, as physicians, one of the things we, we are trying to do what's best for the patient, but we're also trying to avoid getting sued, right? And so I will have a lower threat. Like if I have a consult, usually what will happen is you'll get a consult for this patient and you'll see them. And then during your history taking, you'll see, you'll learn that they have been to see five other surgeons and they've been turned away from all of those surgeons and you are the last hope. And in my mind, I'm thinking, uh, how can I extricate myself from this and not get sued? And sometimes, uh, and I will admit to this, sometimes uh, I have said to myself, you know, ah, man, the imaging doesn't show anything. I don't think there's anything. I don't think they need surgery, but I'm going to offer them a diagnostic arthroscopy because that is the only way they'll believe, right? If And, and the diagnostic arthroscopy in terms of surgery, relatively low risk. Um, and so for me to stick a camera inside their knee and look and say, ah, yeah, you know what? Um, there's nothing, as, as I suspected, there's not anything going on. Um, and so we'll, we'll now need to default to the um, 
conservative option that I, I've done that. And, but usually when I do that, I will sort of make a deal with the patient. Okay. Um, despite what the imaging shows, what the physical exam shows, what everybody else has said, we're going to make a deal. I'm going to do a diagnostic arthroscopy and I'm going to look inside because you are, you are sure that something is going on, but I will do that only on the condition that in the event that it shows nothing, that this non-operative course of treatment that I have recommended for you, then you're going to do that. Hmm. And if they're agreement, then I will take them to the OR. And how often do they then follow the non-operative course of treatment? Maybe between 50 to 60%, but it's probably better that those are better odds than they would have, like they wouldn't have done it anyway, had I not, right? They just would have gone to another, they would have just kept surgeon shopping until they found somebody who was going to just do what they wanted. Yeah, it's frustrating. And and there is obviously with pain and what we know about pain science, there's an entire biopsychosocial component to it that has nothing to do sometimes with any actual physical ailment. And, you know, from my side, I mean, I, as a, as a PT, I, I was thinking this one patient that I saw only twice because one, the first time I saw them was a very lengthy eval because we had to go through a, a history of doctors and surgeries and things that didn't work and people who let her down and, you know, all this kind of thing. And there was this idea that I was going to be the one somehow that was going to finally help her. And I was like, oh boy. And then we had one session and, uh, I mean, this person was so severely deconditioned was the real problem. And of course, having pain because they have absolutely no strength in their body was, was sort of my big takeaway. I did one session, we did some extremely gentle, non-weight-bearing, non-resistive exercises, because I was like, well, this isn't what this person needs eventually, but this is my way in, right? I've got to convince them that I'm going to not hurt them. And then I never saw them again, because Mm. they then had their pain again, and their doctor said this was too hard for them. And I was like, how is... Okay. Anyway, I just get irritated thinking if there's something... But it's that idea, like you said, it just takes the one person, right? Yes. Who kind of like champions that idea that, yes. you know, this is too dangerous. This is too hard. You shouldn't be doing this. You're, you're, you know, quote unquote special for that reason. And uh, it really does kind of put the rest of us in a really tough position. It just gets frustrating. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I get frustrated with that as well. And I have um, both from the viewpoint, uh, oftentimes I think there are some therapists that are, um, who are enabling in that way, but mm-hmm. also family physicians. And, and, and I'm more so frustrated with the family physicians because, because mm-hmm. I think to myself, bro, you're not even a specialist, man. You, you low, you know, next to nothing about musculoskeletal care. And you're going to tell this patient, Oh, this is too hard. Shut up. And like, <laughs> and it's like, then I got to But they have the, 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 trust relationship with that patient, right? right? So then I have to figure out how to explain to the patient without um, encroaching upon that trust relationship that they've um, established with the, their physician and say, no, actually, you know, um, I, I disagree that that's too much. And here are the reasons why. And, and I try to explain, but that frustrates the hell out of me. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, at one point as a competitive athlete, my mindset was always bigger, faster, stronger, bigger, faster, stronger, uh, work harder. Um, but as I've gotten older and then as I've had more of a mobility focus, it's it's more about trying to correct deficits 
address weaknesses and with a focus on longevity. But I still do tend to push people way harder than their non-MSK physicians would think is appropriate. Um, and for, for many of the reasons that you said, I have so many people where I say pain and people think pain is one thing where pain is not one thing, right? There are different types of pain and pain is telling you different things at different times. And trying, and I say to patients, well, do you have pain? Um, and what is the quality of the patient pain, nature of the pain? Well, this, it just hurts. Like, no, it doesn't just hurt. When does it hurt? How does it hurt? Because um, all of these things mean different, mean something different. And, and you just mentioned something about, oh, well, this patient was so deconditioned. And trying to explain to somebody, yo, you don't have pain because you're broken. You have pain because you're weak AF. The only way you're not going to be weak is to be doing, you know, strength and conditioning. And guess what? Because you're weak, that strength and conditioning is going to suck and it's going to cause you discomfort, right? And, and you need to be okay with that. And by the way, discomfort isn't the same thing as pain. I have these conversations frequently. You know, one of the biggest things that I uh, try to get across to them is that not all pain is bad. So pain is a language. Pain is a low level language that the body uses to communicate with your higher level of consciousness. It's telling you something and the message is not always the same. So people need to um, become accustomed to pain and then they need to start to learn to interpret the language, to learn, well, what is this pain? What type of pain is it? And what is it trying to tell me? Because the, the pain will tell you what you need to, to do. And the pain is not, the answer to pain is not always just stop and run away, right? That, that's rarely the answer, right? The, the answer is usually something else. The, the person I was speaking about before, when she then, you know, asked her physician, you know, it was like, oh, I'm in pain. She called her physician. He said, you can't do that. I, I was like, well, that, this, this patient walked in the door of the clinic and then laid down and did some exercises and then walked out the door of the clinic. And you're telling me the part where they lay down and did some exercises was too much. Like just like from a physics standpoint, that doesn't make sense, you know? So yeah, there seems to be a, a really big disconnect between, to your point, sort of non-musculoskeletal certain doctors and, and ones that are just, or those of us that are more sort of focused on that. I found, for everyone listening, I found uh, Dr. Rayner on uh, Instagram you know, when they just send you videos of like, you'll like this. And I was like, oh, I do like this. You were doing some mobility drills in between surgeries and doing some work on your wrists and, and getting in some exercises. And I looked at that and I was like, this man is a unicorn because I have <laughs> sat in on surgeries and I have never seen anyone doing this. So is this sort of practice like what you're doing? Is it the sort of thing as you were describing about when you set up human 2.0 where at first you're maybe getting a little bit of a side eye and then maybe some other surgeons or other people are, are uh, joining in with you, you know, are, is this becoming more common that orthopedic surgeons are, are sensing that just like lots of other people, medical for dentists, other people have these sort of like repetitive positional overuse and, and that they could stand to take better care of themselves. Is that getting more common? Like, I, I still think that I'm a unicorn. And I think that in, in most of my um, cohort, at least in people who trained at the same time as me or before me, that most of those people 
um, are very classical in terms of their belief system and what they do. And so I think for most of those people, they look at what I'm doing as being crazy. However, for some of the younger surgeons who are who have just recently completed their training or are going through their training now, they are starting to see things differently and they're starting to see the value of that. And part of that I think is social media. When I started my social media, my goal was to, was to educate the population and I wanted to educate the general population. But I also, one of the things that I've done in the past, I have a teaching degree. And so I, I'm not at a teaching hospital, uh, although we do occasionally have residents and, and medical students. So I don't really have the opportunity to teach anymore, but I still want to teach. I wanted to use um, social media as a way to educate the general population. But at what I have found in my, because I read the comments on my YouTube videos, there are so many medical students, so many physical therapy students, chiropractic students, um, orthopedic surgery residents, sports medicine residents that follow what I'm doing and love what I'm doing, that I know I'm planting the seed in the new generation. And I'm helping them to understand that what we learn in the textbook, it's more than just that, right? It is, it is something else beyond that. If I think about my own hospital, most of the surgeons, I'm really the only surgeon that's doing what I'm doing on a surgical day, in between cases, whatever. But now I do have uh, nurses who follow me on social media at our hospital. They will get down. We're ne I'm not, never doing a workout. What I'm doing is I'm injecting movement into my day because I think that's the way that it should be. You know, the, the value of, of movement throughout the day supersedes uh, the value of doing uh, concentrated workouts, right? And so... I have them doing stuff throughout the day and, and I will tease them. Uh, oh, you know, like you had to grab that thing. That was a chance for you to do your, your A to G squat, right? Like let's see your full, full depth squat. And so now I have nurses that are, that are doing that and it's kind of a game or, and we're joking with each other, but I see them doing stuff <laughs> and I have, you know, uh, one of some of my anesthetic colleagues, um, you know, they have a little bit more sedentary time during cases and I can see when I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing, I, I got to wait for an instrument or whatever. And I look up behind the curtain and they, they're, they're doing stretches or they're doing squats or they're doing whatever. Orthopedic surgeons are very conservative. I would not expect to see a, you know, other than the people who are training now that sort of seeing the value through social media, um, I would not expect to see a large contingent of orthopedic surgeons changing or, or adopting that kind of lifestyle or whatever uh, until there was hmm. some big paper that, you know, or multiple papers that were shown. And, and you know, I'm not, an, again, I'm not an academic guy. Um, so I'm, I'm not doing that research because there, there are certainly, you know, the, we are doing repetitive tasks. And there are things that I think about all the time, you know, like when I think about my own practice, I way more prefer doing arthroscopy than I do prefer doing ortho, uh, open procedures, although I do knee replacements, hip replacements and trauma cases. And, that, and that's just simply for the one reason, like I noticed that I have, I'm looking down, I'm, so I'm 6'2", and everybody else in the OR usually is shorter than me. So either they all got to stand on stools or I got to have a table down low, which means I'm doing this all the time. And 
there are times like I'm coming out like, what the hell is wrong with my neck? And then I realize, oh yeah, I was looking down like this for eight hours. Um, whereas when I'm doing arthroscopy, I'm looking at a TV screen, right? I'm working down here, but I'm not paying attention to my hands. I'm looking at the screen. And that's like so much. I love arthroscopy days. I'm looking straight ahead. You know, I'm standing up. I'm looking straight ahead. Yeah. And, you're, and you're like, this is a this is a surgery that's not going to also take a toll on my body. It's sort of, you know, as an adjacent question, some of my most uncoordinated, poor proprioceptive patients are doctors. It's it's just kind of across the board. Is this related to that kind of conservatism that you were talking about of, as far as... Um, you know, changing habits or was this just like nobody ever talked about like, hey, this also applies to you and you need to, you know, work on your own fitness? Like, what are they not teaching in medical school? <laughs> well, there's such a, uh, such a, uh, an extent of knowledge that we need to learn. Like we spend so much time reading, either reading, operating or seeing patients in emerge that there's relatively little time for fitness. Having said that, I know a lot of my colleagues they have their various hobbies and and, and stuff like that um, but I think it, it is very important for um, for us to not only maintain our fitness but in addition to that to um, master our physical literacy although we need to learn a lot and know a lot at the end of the day if I if I just boil it down to brass tacks, I'm a technician and I'm, I'm a glorified carpenter. And, um, but the thing is, I'm a carpenter on the inside of the body. It's a very complex machine. And um, I work with very fine instruments and, and the, joint, the tolerances of joints and bones is, is mere millimeters. And so it's important for us to be very dexterous, right? And I know several colleagues of mine that are brilliant. They are super smart, right? They know everything um, that there is to know about their particular aspect of orthopedics. But I would never have them operate on me and I would never send anybody that I cared about to them for surgery. Not because they don't know their shit. It has nothing to do with that. It's just that I've seen what their hands are like. You know, I may not be the most well-known orthopedic surgeon um, in the academic realms because of, um, you know, I'm not publishing articles or whatever. In the medical realm, the way that you know that things are, that, that you are doing things well is when medical colleagues will ask for you to do their surgery or they will send their family members. Like when people send me, when like, you know, they send me their mother to operate on their mother, right? Then I know, okay, that that's that's what I need to know, right? So, but to come back to your your point, the dexterity matters. Um, I don't think people all understand um, the importance of that, and especially as I said, my cohort and older. But I think that the younger cohort is starting to see um, the light, and there's also been. Um, a push recently in the last five years for orthopedic programs in both Canada and the U.S. to switch to a more competency-based model, 
Okay, so before you, you just went through, you did year one, two through five, then you write the exam, you write an exam every year, you write the exam at the end. If you pass the exam, then you become an orthopedic surgeon, you go do your fellowship, and, and then off you are to the races. Now they don't want to make it a time-based thing anymore. Time-based loosely, but more, more importantly, competency-based. So until you've demonstrated certain skill sets, you cannot progress. And so with that, there is a little bit more of a focus on physical skills, manual skills. That also has influenced a little bit more of a shift in that direction. And the final thing that I'll say on that is that, and so one of the things that I'm always telling my, myself is if I'm going to talk, talk, I need to walk the walk. And I don't want to, I don't want to prescribe any exercise for a patient that I can't do myself. I, it is a, a point of pride for me that mm. I am trying to develop skills, whatever it may be, handstands, um, you know, strict muscle up, ring muscle ups, uh, planche, lead, whatever. I'm trying to develop skills for myself. I'm 53 years old, uh, but I'm trying to develop skills for myself that I think all humans should be able to do. I'm trying to demonstrate to my patients that this exercise is so important that I think it's important for me to do. And I don't want to hear you whining about, oh, it's too hard. I can't do it or whatever. Because look, here I am over here doing this, right? And, and, and I love to say to patients, they talk about rehab after surgery and, oh, this is hard. I couldn't do it, blah, blah, blah. And then I say, oh, by the way, did I mention to you that I've had five knee surgeries? And yeah, here's me doing this thing. And here, let me show you this video on YouTube where I'm doing this thing that I told you to do and you can't do it yet at five weeks. And here's me doing it three days after surgery. Come on, let's get with it. Sarah, I'm gonna totally change the topic here because I have three questions for you. Oh. Why do yoga teachers have so much hip flexor pain? Why are yoga teachers who tend to be quite hypermobile so tight all the time? And how the heck can all these yoga teachers with yoga butt get rid of their yoga butt, AKA proximal hamstring tendinopathy? How does this, how does this work? Like what, what's the deal? So that's a lot of questions all at the same time. And that would be very hard and take up the length of this entire episode for me to answer. So the good news is I'm not going to have to do that. Ooh. And the reason why I don't have to do that is that we already made a entire tutorial, five hours, five hours, keep it forever. Forever. Review as often as you like. As often as you'd like. Five continuing education credits with Yoga Alliance. Those are important. Maybe. I mean, that's up for debate. But anyway, we've done a bunch of tutorials. This is our sixth tutorial. And incredibly, it was overwhelmingly our most popular tutorial when we first launched it last year. Does this relate to the three questions that I asked you? It absolutely does, because this tutorial gives really practical answers in the form of movements and exercises to help you understand if these things are happening to you as a practitioner or as a teacher or to your students, why they might be happening and what you need to do to help. And it's not only those things. Wait, what were the ones that you said? Well, it was hypermobility, hip flexor pain, and yoga butt. There are more though, right? So many more. We talk about SI joint pain. We talk about tightness, just feeling tight all the time, even if you're not hypermobile. Sciatica. IT band syndrome. All of these things that are very common for teachers and are exceptionally common for our students as well. Yeah, and it's not just the practical exercises that potentially address some of the symptoms that students might be experiencing that help fill in the strength gaps that might be contributing to the problem. Spoiler alert. There are some strength 
progressions that include kettlebells and barbells in this tutorial. There is also some exceptional anatomy instruction. Thank you, that was my part. And so we're putting it all together with the science, the theoretical, and the practical to help you actually have more solutions to offer your students and to be of service to your students in a way that speaks really quite directly to a lot of the problems that they are going to probably come to you with as it turns out. So why are we talking about this right now? Because we're having a sale. We've whoop. actually we've actually discounted this course. Whoop, whoop, whoop. You can buy it at a discount, which is uh, less than full price. So we've actually discounted this thing more than 25%, which is probably the best sale we've ever had on a single tutorial, wouldn't you say? Uh, definitely. Yeah, so if you've been wanting this tutorial, if you missed it the first time around, you should snap it up quick because this sale will end, it will go back to full price. So it was around $130, now it's $100. So just in case you don't know, it's me, Sarah, but also Jaisal Parikh, who- Genius is a genius and the co-host of the Yoga is Dead podcast, which I highly, highly recommend you check out. So make sure that you click the link in our bio, head on over to the page that tells you all about what's included and snap it up before it's gone. One of the populations that I work with is older women. And I see time after time that they, they need to get stronger. Uh, and I actually I just had a, a, most, a recent patient that I'm just so frustrated because they were seeing another physical therapist and they were actually getting weaker. They were shuffling more. They were stooped more because they were given exercises to do that were just far too easy. They were given the little pink dumbbells or, you know, the, the yellow resistance band. And they were told three sets of 10 and they could do three sets of 10 in their sleep. You know, you know, a, a lot of people are afraid of hurting themselves with strength training, I think. I think people get this idea that they, you know, they could really do some some harm to themselves. Uh, but what I see is that in particular for, for our older patients, they're more likely to hurt themselves by not banking the balance and strength benefits that come with weight training. And I and I end up having to do like quite a bit of re-education for people. Is that something that you find yourself doing as well? At our facility, we have like what we call a master's class. Some people don't like us to say older or seniors or whatever. So we call it master's class. But basically, it's a little bit of a toned down version of what we do in our regular class. But we still do the same. We we don't do CrossFit, but we we use some of the ideas from the CrossFit model. And, and in that, like we have programming of the day. OK, and so every class all day long, everybody's going to do that same programming. We scale it up for some groups because they're more advanced and we scale it down for other groups. So for the master's class, they'll do the same programming or aspects of the same programming and we'll scale it down. But we still want them to lift. We still want them to do resistance exercise. One of the main indicators of, of health and longevity is a, a degree of lean muscle mass, right? Um, in, your, in your older years. And so there is only one way to develop lean muscle mass. There is, there are no two ways about this. And so the little sheet that freaking drives me bonkers, right? I literally just tore one up yesterday. If that <laughs> it drives me bonkers. It's like, like, yo, this is way too easy. And, and it needs to be progressive. I tell patients, 
if you do the same thing, if you go to a therapist and, and you do the same thing two days in a row and it hasn't changed, I said, you need to find another therapist. Because I said, no workout should ever be the same. It should always progress. And I said, they could either increase the number of reps, increase the number of sets, or, or increase the duration of time. Those are the three easiest things. But I said, it should always change. It should never, no one should ever give you a sheet and say, oh, this is it. And then this week you're doing that next week and the week following you're doing the same thing. That's a complete waste of time and money. Um, so people should be um, lifting all the time. And I, and I have to convince people of that. And people go, oh, you know, when I walk and I'm like, walking is, is, I said, that's not even real. It is exercise, but I said, it's so generic, non-specific and not directed towards the deficit that you have. Yeah. I'm, I'm great. I'm glad for that. You're doing it but that's not helping, right? You know, this particular problem that you've um, arrived with has a um, specific deficit that we need to address. And being generally active throughout the day or walking does not address that deficit. And so it, you can do those things, but you're gonna to continue to have difficulty if you, don't, if you don't do these specific exercises. And lifting weights should be part of it. Every therapy session, should look the same as a workout. I think of everybody as an athlete. And so it, it should be as if you were training for a sport. You should be sweating when you leave. You should be um, short of breath when you're doing this stuff uh, because you're working hard. And the body adapts to um, specific stresses that are imposed upon it. Um, and if you do not impose a particular stress on the body, there is no need for it to adapt, no need for it to change. And so if you are working within your, your current um, functional envelope, the body does not pay attention to you because it, it's like, well, I can do that already. I said you need to step outside of your zone of comfort. You need to step outside your abilities um, in order to stimulate change and growth in the body. So, uh, and, and that means lifting weights or doing resistance training. And it means working, working hard. Absolutely. And to your point as well, you know, one person's working hard is not the next person's working hard. So there is a scale to it. And, yes. you know, and I think the same way I think about, you know, rehab to, you know, elite athlete is just a series of progressions yes. of difficulty in various ways. And that's, that's really it. And I, I think the, I think the part where people get stuck often is when you're in the rehab end of it, when there's pain, it's, it's, I found it difficult both to convince patients sometimes, but also to convince colleagues that that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be strengthening. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be doing something that's hard for their body. And I don't know if you have thoughts about that in particular that you might want to want to share, but that seems to be sort of a bit of a sticking point. It's like, well, if they're in pain, you know, we have to take it really easy mm -hmm. and maybe we just do some massage, but, but a reluctance to then also make the person effort in any way. Part of this, part of the fault lies with the therapist because the, the therapist themselves and like I understand why they would do this because the therapist doesn't know, you know, what surgery or how the surgery was done, you know, what are the complicating factors? No, they don't want to do something that's going to break something or wreck the surgery, whatever. I get that. But uh, on the other hand, 
they have to recognize, just as do physicians and the patient, that not pain, not all pain is the same. And so you need to really get specific about what is pain, what type of pain it is, when it occurs, and what that means. So I will routinely say to my patients, when you're going to be doing this exercise, I expect there to be some discomfort. So discomfort to me is, you know, and I use a pain scale that is that is purposely outrageous because as you said, pain, not everybody's pain is the same and everybody's pain tolerance is not the same, but we can all pretty much agree on what's outrageous, right? So I'll say to people on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is no pain at all and 10 is the amount of pain where it is so bad that you are gonna give me $1,000 out of your pocket right now to cut that extremity off in front of you with a rusty butter knife. It sounds crazy, right? But people, like you, you can imagine like how bad it would have to be for them to say that, right? Or to say, yeah, I agree to that. On that pain scale, when you are working out, you may have discomfort and that discomfort may be around a six or even as high as a seven. Anything above that, stop. But if it's six or seven, where it's bad enough that it makes you want to say to me, stop talking, doc, I need to concentrate on this so I can breathe. I said, I'm cool with that. If you have that or less, keep going, right? If it's more, then you should stop. And I also talked about the quality. I said, if you have pain that's super sharp and um, it occurs during the activity and persists after the activity, we don't want that. So if you have discomfort that occurs while you are doing a thing, um, but immediately after you stop, it goes away, said, I've got no problems with that. Carry on, right? Anything that lasts, persists afterwards, that's a sign that you're, you're doing too much. Or if it's, you know, eight, nine, or 10, getting to where like you can't function, you can't breathe, whatever, then that's too much. But anything short of that is, is fine. And it just means you need to just concentrate, manage your breathing and, and work through it. Because that tells me that you are working at that threshold of, yeah, I'm getting to the boundaries of what my body can tolerate, but that's also where you need to be spending time. Right. And so I, I say to people that five, six, seven to me is discomfort. Eight, nine, ten is pain. And five, six, seven, you should run towards discomfort and run away from pain. Right. Because the discomfort, as far as I'm concerned, that's telling you where you're either tight, you're weak or a combination of the both. Right. And we should always be working to correct those things. Weakness and tightness. I think that's that's for a lot of us. That is a real uh, reframe of a concept of not only the pain scale, which I personally really don't like at all for that reason, because everyone, the people, I either get patients who say my pain's 10 out of 10, and then I'm doing like an insanely hard eye roll inside my head, but keeping it to myself. They're talking to you like this and they say it's 10 out of 10 or it's 15 out of 10. I said, bro. Like you don't understand the scale. <laughs> yeah. You don't understand. You did not understand the assignment. Okay. <laughs> It's not 15 out of 10. Right. Or I get a lot of people who say, I have a really high pain tolerance. And I also, 
I know. I do that face as well because I'm like, I promise you, A, you don't. And B, it's not a great thing, actually. You know, like. So you will understand this. Uh, People who, if they're non-MSK people and they're listening to this right now, Mm -hmm. that is the number one red flag right there. Every time you hear that come out of people's mouths, you instantaneously know it is the opposite, right? <laughs> like I have a high pain. Oh my God. No, 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 no. It's almost 100% true, right? And the people who say this, so they'll have fibromyalgia or some other kind of complex regional pain disorder, or uh, they'll have a frozen joint, or they'll have a number of narcotic uh, allergies, mm. right? And if you have a number of allergies to pain medications, what does that mean? That means that you have been exposed to all those different pain medications. Somebody has actually prescribed those to you to try to control your pain, and they have found that you were allergic. And now, a lot of people who have allergies to to narcotics, if you really delve into it and you look at those, their, their medical charts, Often the time, those people, they don't have allergies to all those narcotics. What they've done is they they used a whole bunch of narcotics. It didn't control their pain. And then they've said to their physician, who who oftentimes is not necessarily um, well-versed on narcotic analgesics and MSK issues, um, oh, I have this side effect. I have this. I have that. And they go, oh, you're allergic to that. And oftentimes... You know, we will, when we're in the, the OR, um, if, when we'll have these patients and they'll be allergic to so many different things. So like we have no choice in the OR, but to give them something to which they're aller- allergic, right? Um, because otherwise we can't give them any analgesia. And, and many times, almost all the time, we'll see they're not allergic to it. They have no reaction. Once they're under anesthesia, and they don't know that they're getting that thing, we give it to them to control their pain, they have no issues right. with it, right? But it's because they've been exposed to a whole bunch. Some people think that they should have no pain ever. Like, and any amount of discomfort is is ridiculous pain. Um, and that's, that's just unrealistic. Again, pain is not necessarily the enemy. Uh, it, it's always the messenger. And sometimes pain is your friend because it's telling you where you need to spend more time. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, this has been so great. Thank you. I have a couple of more questions from Instagram that that were submitted. The first one was, do replacement parts come in different shapes and sizes? Yeah. So in the past, most implants came in sort of generic sizes uh, and generic shapes. They they, um, would have one sort of shape, say, for example, the next gen knee implant. Okay, so that's a Zimmer Biomet um, knee replacement implant. It's kind of middle of the road implant, okay, in terms of um, features, quality, and price. And it's one of the most commonly used ones in North America. So the next gen implant has a basic shape, okay, but it has different sizes because obviously the next gen implant that goes in my knee is not going to be the same size that goes in your knee. And so that was up until maybe the last five to eight years or so. Um, and then we start to have 3D printing technology. 
what you found with the advent of 3D printing technology is that you could then now start to make custom um, implants. And, and not only could you make custom implants, you could make custom cutting jigs for those implants. Um, because in the past, with the generic sizes, we had implant or we had cutting guides, one set of cutting guides for everybody. Um, and we cut to certain angles, certain dimensions, and then we slap on these generic implants, different sizes, but generic implants. But now with 3D printing technology, where you can print um, implants and you can print guides to match your specific anatomy, um, now you can, if uh, we don't do this in Canada because of the price um, and because we are a universal, universal healthcare system, but in the United States, um, you can do this. If you have the money, you can pay to have um, a 3D, 3D um, a CT scan of your joints done. Uh, and then from that, they can uh, build, a, build and 3D print um, specific jigs that are designed to um, match your anatomy. And um, you can custom tailor certain alignments based on um, um, computer referencing and um, the, the 3D model of your skeleton. Um, and then they can create custom jigs for you and custom implants that mimic your native anatomy and are custom designed to you and that um, have jigs that will cut to you. So that's something that has uh, occurred over the last sort of five to eight years. Um, it's not in widespread use, again, because of the cost. That's very cool. Uh, I didn't know that about the 3D printing. That's a, that's a really interesting development. Yeah. It, it, um, and I think in the future, as the cost of 3D printing comes down, um, that will be more widespread. That will become a more widespread option. And yeah. I actually have an idea I want to pitch to Elon Musk because um, he's got all the money in the world, uh, <laughs> a, a kind of around that. Um, but uh, I, I need to be, get a, a larger social media following first so, so that he can actually notice who I am. Uh, and then I can pitch it <laughs> I, to him. But, maybe we can brainstorm some other billionaires because I would like you to find someone maybe a little more, I don't know, a little more stable behaving perhaps. Not, I'm not sure. Anyway. anyway. <laughs> he, has, he has become rather <laughs> erratic. Sure. I think there's a, a sure. just a handful out there at close close to or at his level that are much more below the radar that that might be uh, an easier an easier person to work with. True, true. Um, okay, so the next question from Instagram is: When there is a herniated disc, do doctors prefer surgery or exercises for hernia resorption? The disc material disc contents generally are not resorbed. Um, they. Uh, um, they, yeah, they generally are not resorbed. They, they will usually hang around. There might be a small degree of resorption, but in my experience, I've just found that they hang around and they um, can move around um, once they've been externalized outside of the disc. And sometimes they become sequestrated um, in the far lateral recess, but uh, they generally don't get resorbed. Now, um, whether or not we do surgery um, really depends on the patient's findings. So the thing that people don't understand about spinal surgery is that spinal surgery is almost, it's rarely indicated. Um, and so we almost always 
try to treat people non-operatively before they go to spine surgery. Um, and I would say that it's probably maybe 20% of the time or, or less that, that surgery is indicated. Um, and most of the people were trying to treat um, non-operatively with exercise and, and other modalities. Um, the only indications for um, spinal surgery are uh, loss of bowel bladder function, so cauda equina, um, the loss of sensation or loss of motor function in a particular nerve root distribution. People come all the time, they go, oh, my legs are weak, blah, 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 this is weak. And they tell you, and it's not in any recognizable pattern, that that we don't, we don't treat that with surgery um, because that's more psychological than anything else, right? Um, but if we can, if you have um, loss of sensation or loss of weakness and we do a testing and that's, oh, that's the L3 distribution, that's the L5 distribution, that tells us there is a specific nerve that is compressed, we can decompress that. So um, loss of bowel bladder function, loss of motor or sensory function in a particular nerve root distribution, um, intractable pain. Okay. And, and we like back pain is as harsh as this sounds. I tell people all the time, surgeons, we give a rat's ass about back pain. We don't care. 95% of people in their adult life are going to have at least one episode of mechanical back pain lasting six weeks. To be honest, we don't care about back pain. Um, not because we don't care about it, but because for issues that we mentioned before, everybody's perception of pain is different, you know? Um, and so what, what is terrible pain for one person is mild discomfort for somebody else. And so pain, generalized back pain, yeah, that doesn't mean anything to us. But um, intractable back pain that has failed all other kinds of treatment, including epidural, uh, nerve blocks, all kind of whatever, and is associated with osteoarthritis of the pain, spondylysis, spondylolisthesis, or some other structural problem. Um, that's a surgical indication. And finally, surgical, or sorry, structural instability of the spine. That's an indication for spine surgery, like osteomyelitis of the spine. Um, so infections of the spine that result in um, structural loss of structural integrity, or also cancers, whether they be cancers of the, the bony elements of the spine or metastatic disease from somewhere else that has compromised the structural integrity of the spine, um, that's an indication for surgery. Anything else is not an indication for surgery. That, like, so people, I, it's funny, I read my comments all the time on my videos. People are like, oh, it's your surgeon, all you wanna do is operate, blah, blah, blah. What about all these people, all this back surgery? We don't want to operate on backs, and none, none of us want to do that, not even spine surgeons. We don't want to operate on backs. Surgery is like the ultimate last resort for back pain, and only after they failed everything else and they keep coming back and bothering the crap out of us, right? Um, it's not, back pain is not an indication. So unless they have one of those indications, it's being treated non-operatively, and it, it's not for, from the viewpoint of disc, to encourage disc resorption, because like I said, that almost never happens. MRI these people later, five years later, if they haven't had surgery, the disc has not res been resorbed. Um, the disc has lost height and the, the um, herniated fragment that came out um, has just either been scarred down um, uh, to the, the dural uh, tissue around it 
or it has moved its way um, into a lateral recess. So, you know, where it can either cause worsening symptoms or it's moved to an area where there's a little bit more space and it's not impinging on it. Thank you. And um, I like, I just want to take that last five minutes of what you said and just put it on repeat and drive around in my car with a bullhorn and just like play it to like the entire city. <laughs> Tell that to people all the time, man. Oh. All right. Here's the last one from Instagram. Sure. How do orthopedic surgeons or maybe the field itself view the concept of biotensegrity. You have to tell me what that is. I don't know what that is. So, okay. So this is sort of from the the world of fascia okay. and the idea of the model of how fascia behaves in the body. Uh, Buckminster Fuller came up with this biotensegrity model, which is just sort of like a, a structure for one of a letter bird, better word that, that is, it has a, a tensegrity uh, to itself. It, it has a, like the, like a, a drop of water has a sort of tensegrity yeah. to itself, right? Uh, in the world of sort of fascia studies in particular, they talk a lot about the fascia of the body as having this biotensegrity. Is that something that, I mean, my, my experience when I was in PT school uh, and at the time I was sort of starting to learn about what fascia was and I was doing more studies around it. And even in the world of PT, they were a little bit like, well, ha ha ha, that's fine. But like, that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> um, so is that something that, I mean, I don't know if surgically that comes into consideration. Is that something that uh, you take into consideration when you're working with people from a movement standpoint? So um, first of all, I'd say, I, I don't think this is widely known about in orthopedic circles uh, or, or thought about in orthopedic circles um, at all. Cause it, uh, this is my first time um, hearing about that. And this is me being an orthopedic surgeon who also is kind of a mobility guy. Um, and now, I haven't heard that particular model. I have heard of um, different thought processes and ideas around fascia. Um, we, uh, um, several of my therapists um, are certified in active relief or active release, um, which is a technique which is based around the fascia. I think it plays less of a role than people think. Um, from my perspective, the fascia is um, it provides two roles. Number one, it encapsulates muscles. And number two, it separates muscle planes. And, and to me, those are the, the, the fundamental roles that it serves. Um, and, and that's what I see when I'm um, going and I'm performing surgery and I'm trying to access various compartments. So that that is my interaction with it. Now, how do I think that it behaves or contributes to various musculoskeletal problems. Well, from what I see when I operate in fascia, so if I operate on a patient for the first time, the, the fascia is a pristine tissue. It's just very thin. It looks like tissue paper, it moves very well. You can separate it from the muscle very well. The muscle slides over it very nicely. Um, but, so that's native fascia. But if somebody's had surgery, and, and in particular, a surgery that goes into or um, into a muscle belly, right? Then um, we have to disrupt the fascia, right, to, to do that. Or if they've had some kind of traumatic, uh, uh, you know, femur fracture, tibia fracture, where the bone edges have cut the fascia, then it, the fascia is no longer foreseen and we start to see some scarring 
and some adhesions of uh, muscle tissue to the fascia. So normally the fascia is separate and it will slide. But in those cases, um, it, there is some adhesion. And so I think um, there probably is some um, utility, some, um, to doing um, work to try to uh, address those adhesions uh, between the fascia and the muscle. But people who think they're doing a ton of fascial work, um, I, I think that they're kidding themselves. Um, that I think it's having less results than, than what they believe. And because I, I can see like just how difficult, like say for example, I, I did an anterior approach on somebody four months ago. Uh, anterior approach total hip arthroplasty. And so for people who don't know, the, the anterior approach is the one surgical approach that we use that we don't cut through muscles. Um, we cut the fascia over tensor fascia lata, and then we pull the muscle aside, and then we cut the back of the fascia. So we come through the front, pull the muscle aside, go through the back, put the rectus um, off to the, the one side, tensor fascia lata and vastus lateralis to the other side. Bang, we're right down on the capsule. So no disruption of muscle um, tissue whatsoever. So that, uh, and I love that approach just because of, of its beauty and it's hard to do technically, but from a um, anatomic point of view, it's, it's so simple. Now, um, so this guy, um, I made a technical error. And so normally the stem should be in, should be antiverted by about 15 degrees. And in this particular case, just for whatever, with the bone, the way that I had broached it, I was off by a few degrees. Um, that meant that it was a little bit more antiverted towards the front and it's a little less stable than it would uh, normally be. Usually we don't have a problem with stability with the anterior approach. So anyway, this guy went discharged from the hospital and he had some issues in physiotherapy and he had a, a subluxation of the stem, um, the femoral head during physiotherapy. So I brought him back. And so when I went back to do the revision, the amount of scar that was there, uh, like I hadn't done anything to the muscle, but the amount of scar that was there in that fascia and then in between the muscle and the fascia um, was quite significant almost to the point where it was like a little bit hard to tell where the interval was after his initial surgery. It had only been like a month after his initial surgery. And so like I'm directly on it. He's during that whole time he's been doing physiotherapy. He's been doing everything. And yet there was a ton of scar there. And I just think, um, yeah, the, these techniques, I just think are not as powerful as people think. And I, and I just think probably people are just going to be as, well suited just by doing a um, concerted, consistent program of flexibility um, and and some you know some manipulation, some massage of the area just to help um, break things down. Number one, I don't think people um, are as limited by fascia um, as as you know some people might say. And then number two, I, I don't know that these techniques are as fruitful as people think them to be. But mm -hmm. I, I'm having, I'm saying this um, with a limited knowledge of the particular techniques, and I'm just speaking more from what I see um, 
when I'm actually, you know, looking at a gross specimen, I have the person open and I'm staring at the fashion. And I think, I mean, this is one of the things that we try to do here on our podcast is, you know, we, my co-host Laurel and I both have very strong opinions about lots of things, but we try to hold them loosely so that when we learn new things, we're able to replace those opinions with a more accurate, maybe more up-to-date, things like that. So the world of, of fascial study is, seems to be just sort of, as much as people like to think that science is just facts and those facts are never changing. I think um, one of the things that those of us who who try to stay on top of things know that's just not true. And especially in the world of the study of fascia, I think we're still learning, you know, so I think it's hard to... For sure, for sure. And I think the one thing that people have to understand, and, and so we saw this very much during COVID, the general population doesn't understand science. Science is a process. It's a process of discovery. And we are trying to get towards the truth. And it's, and it's not the truth changes. It's just that um, as we learn more about whatever particular thing we are studying, um, we mm. start to learn what questions to ask because the previous questions that were asked were not perhaps specific enough or pointed enough or directed enough or they were directed in the wrong direction. So we start to learn what questions to ask we also start to have better instruments and better tools with which to analyze the results. If you think about, say, telescopes, the, the original power of the first telescope compared to the power of the James Webb's telescope are orders of magnitude different. And so the science that you could um, ascertain using the first telescope is much different than what you can ascertain with Hubble or the James Webb telescope. People go, oh, science, you can't trust the scientists, they're lying. No, they are revising their opinion um, based on the new information. And so my understanding of fascia has to do with what I do um, as a surgeon, but science may um, show me at some point in time as there is more data that uh, it has more effect than I think or whatever. And I'm prepared to, I'm prepared to revise my, like what I think of now is my current position based on my current knowledge, right? But if, if something comes along, changes my, my knowledge, I am not so set in my beliefs that I cannot change my opinion based on, um, you know, based on knowledge that where I am today as an orthopedic surgeon, um, if somebody had said to me while I was in my residency, oh, you know, you're going to have uh, post-operative patients who have had shoulder surgery. And you're going to be showing them how to do handstands in the gym as part of the rehab. Um, I, I would have said, you're, man, get out of here. Quit. You're, 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 I don't know what you're smoking, but I'm not having any part of it. Right. Um, but I do that now. Uh, um, because I've learned that teaching handstands, well, is all about scapular control, right? And to me, the scapula is the stage upon which the shoulder acts. If I want someone to have good shoulder function, I need to first teach them how to have good scapular function. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to teach people um, how to do a handstand, um, not because I want them to do a handstand, but b when you are learning how to do handstand, you need to learn how to retract, depress your scapula. You learn, need to learn how to have active core. Like there's all these things that are just 
these are all things that I need to teach people who are rehabilitating from shoulders how to do. So why don't I just teach them this task and then they will get all of those things as a byproduct. And as a bonus, they learn how to do a handstand. As, as a bonus, they learn how to do a handstand. I want to thank Dr. Rayner so much for joining us today. Um, could you let us know what's the best way for people to find you? My main platform is on YouTube. So I am Chris Rayner at Chris Rayner MD on YouTube. Um, I'm on Instagram uh, as well at Stable Knees with a Z. And I am on TikTok, Dr. Chris, C-H-R-I-S, Rainer, R-A-Y-N-O-R. And they can find me on those three platforms. Thank you so much, Dr. Rainer. It's really been a pleasure. And I've learned tons listening to you. And I, I'm sure that our listeners will too. I'm going to see, I'm going to keep an eye out for anyone in the U.S. who might be doing something even remotely as cool as what you're up to out there in Ottawa. Well, listen, like I said to you before, I am, so I'm about 80 to 90% uh, done Um for my my first course that I'm going to be offering to physiotherapists called Apex. Um, and it's basically all of the principles um, that we've discussed today and about how I think physiotherapists uh, should work. So so that I'm going to do the course uh, and then I'm working on a uh, Apex certification. Um, and, uh, and so that of course will have, uh, be, uh, have CME points that's associated with it. So that's something that I'm working on. And my goal for that is to, um, share this, this movement-based rehabilitation philosophy with physiotherapists and trainers around the world. Um, and then, potentially have people who are uh, become certified in it and then people who can, uh, you know, become uh, teachers and trainers in that. So that's something that, that uh, you know, I, my wife keeps saying to me, oh, you got to have a date you, you, to get this done because you keep dragging it on. So I told her, so I'm shooting for the end of January um, to have my first course. So that's something that's coming. So hopefully um, that will be out uh, in 2023. And if all goes well, maybe um, I will come down to, to Los Angeles and offer it in Los Angeles. Well, we would be we'll be lucky to have you. Thank you so, so much. Not a problem. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you so much for joining us on the Movement Logic Podcast. It helps us out so much. If you liked this episode, to subscribe and also to rate and review either on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. 